0: Hey, good morning, friends. It's great, great to see you, great to be with you. Uh, You'll notice that there are an above average number of little people in the congregation today that are worshiping corporately with us and as, as a church we do that very intentionally we want an intergenerational worship gathering as much as possible and so we do this once a month where our, all of our elementary age kids are in class with us and hey kids look at me for a second all right here's the deal you know what Jesus says and you can use this with your parents all day long all right Jesus says to your parents that they ought to learn to worship like you worship do you know that that's what the Bible says. So we are so thankful that you're here so you can teach us how to come to our Father in heaven like children. So that's great. Can we welcome our kids here? Yeah, it's good. We're th- we, are th- we are so thankful that you're here with us. Uh, if you're new here, we are in a series of messages that we've called Kingdom Culture. And really what this, this, this series is about is about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that he taught uh, in Matthew chapters 5, verse 7. And what we notice about the culture of the kingdom of God is it's different than the culture of this world. And so Jesus comes and he establishes his kingdom. And he says, if we're going to receive his, his kingdom, we have to have repentant hearts or we cannot receive what he has to offer us. And then that, that repentance of heart uh, produces certain, uh, a certain affect in our hearts. Um, first, it doesn't seem so good for us because we feel this impoverished spirit that we have, like, like, like that we're not enough, that there is definitely something missing that we really need, namely his grace and his presence in our lives. And so if you're coming in here today and you're feeling like, gosh, I really need the Lord, you're in a really good spot because that's what the kingdom of God, that's the foundation of it. Um, And it leads to this place where we're willing to enter in and mourn our sin instead of just cover it up. And, and it produces a different kind of a strength the Bible calls it meekness um, when, when you're when your spirit is poor and you're mourning over your sin you choose a different way to be strong because Jesus had a different way to be strong didn't he and it's all based on this idea that we that we are growing in a hunger and a thirst for his righteousness for his way of being right with God and his spirit gives us strength uh, to live that out and now we're kind of looking. Looking at like the the affect of the heart, because Jesus opens his sermon by sharing this because he doesn't want us to miss the culture of the kingdom. He doesn't want us to just blow by it and get get to the to-do list that we're so accustomed to getting to. He says, no, something happens in your heart and it changes the way that you live. It changes the way that you walk it out. And so last week, we looked at this idea of what it looks like to live mercifully because we understand what it is to be poor in spirit. This week, we are looking at this idea of having a purity of heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, says this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Each and every person that is in this room today and was in the first service, each and every person that's in any church this morning has a desire to have an encounter with God. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. The Lord knows that about us because He designed it. He hardwired it into us to have an experience with our Creator. The problem is, is that our hearts are so disheveled and distorted that we rarely have the opportunity to see God as He is. And so, the question that I was asking this week is, what does it mean to have a pure heart? I mean, what what does that actually mean? There is a Danish uh, philosopher and theologian. Uh, named Soren Kierkegaard. He's written a lot of books. Most of them are really hard for me to understand. But, but one of the titles of one of the books, I can understand this, is um, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. And that's really helpful for a simple guy like me. To understand that to have a pure heart means to have a singular focus. And so what we see Jesus calling his church to is to have a singular focus on him. Now there's work that the Spirit must do in each and every one of us to make that focus singular. And then by faith that that focus is established in us as Christians because we're in Christ. But we find that our lives are about, uh, yes, we are pure, but we are purifying. And that's kind of the the direction of the sermon uh, that the sermon's going to take today is the the work that God does to purify our hearts and to to, uh, consistently be purifying our hearts so that we can see God that's what our hearts long for. So here's our big idea today. God comes into focus when our divided heart is unified in the gospel. Okay, so I stepped out on a limb this week. I'm got, I've got this pretty elaborate metaphor. Now, as a preacher, you need to understand, as, as, from my perspective, anytime you do an elaborate metaphor, you're kind of staking it all on the line. It's either going to go really well, or like, you got to get out of it, you know? And so I told, the, I told the first service, I said, hey guys, if this doesn't work out, don't tell me until after the second service, okay? And they, uh, they anyway, I think it worked out. So uh, we're gonna be playing off this idea of vision today because I think it's something that we can all relate to. Um, and so our, our first point is this as we dig in. We all have double vision. And, uh, and here's what I mean by that. Our hearts are divided. Um, our hearts are divided. In order to really see God, purity of hearts, what, what is required, and, and the interesting thing about the Beatitudes, kind of uh, um, piggybacking off last week, is, is that Jesus calls his disciples to this really high standard. Have you ever noticed that? Like, you can read, the, you can read like, some of the, the epistles of Paul, uh, you know, where they, where they talk a lot about grace, and Jesus talks about grace, but he also talks about the demands of grace, right? And I think sometimes that's kind of intimidating, Right? But here's the thing I want you to see about Jesus. Jesus always gives what he requires so that he can require what he gives. He always does that in the scriptures. He calls us to a high standard, and it's because he has given us so much as his people. And so he longs to see it in us because that's what conformity to his image, looking like Christ, actually begins to look like. But here's the deal about our hearts. Our hearts are all divided. Sin has divided our hearts and yes, we want to see God, but we also live for other things. You know, our, these, this, this divided or this heart that has all these different chambers is kind of going after different things. And seeing God is only one of those things. And the scriptures say we'll never see God unless it becomes the main thing. Uh, it reminds me of this uh, situation that happened at my in-law's house in um, in 2011. They, uh, my, my sister-in-law, let me set the scene for you. My sister-in-law was sitting in the basement of her parents' house, and she's just hanging out, having a good time, and then all of a sudden, she hears this extremely loud crash upstairs. I mean, it is so loud and so profound that it is like rattling the basement and the foundation of the house. So she walks up the steps, or maybe runs up the steps, to look and to basically get to the top of the stairs and see daylight through the roof. And uh, there had been a storm happening, and there was this tree that was like 125 feet tall that was near their property line, and that tree had apparently fallen. And when the tree fell, it didn't, it didn't just fall into the house, but it caught not one, but two other trees as it was falling down, and they all fell into the living room of my in-law's house. Had my sister-in-law been upstairs, it might have been a different story for her. But I tell you that story because as they begin to kind of um, do the research of why the tree fell and what had happened as they're kind of drawing up the reports, it comes to find out that, that the heart of the tree had been eaten out by carpenter ants, right? And so it was no longer strong enough or substantial enough to bear the weight of the tree. I think it's fair to say for us, kind of translating this to a spiritual plane, is that sin has eaten out the heart of, of who we are as followers of Jesus, as followers of God. It's, it's, it's divided and distorted our hearts. And we find ourselves with this place where we're constantly struggling with what James, who's Jesus' little brother, says, double-mindedness. It's hard to have a purity of heart because our hearts have been so distorted and destroyed by sin and yet Jesus calls us to this. So before we look at the good news, we have to understand and face what is true about the natural condition of the human heart. Um, Moses wrote this uh, in Genesis chapter six. And this is, um, this is right before the flood happens, okay? There's this little phrase. It's a, it's a really uh, gripping passage of scripture that tells us about the nature of the human heart. Scriptures say this, the Lord saw the wickedness of man, and that word man is not a singular man. That is a, that is a plural word, which means all of mankind. So the Lord saw all of our hearts and saw how great, uh, wickedness it was in the earth um, and, and then every intention, listen to this, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I don't know how you like get more specific. Like We can't squirm out of that one, you know what I mean? We can't say, well, maybe that guy, but not me. Every intention of the thoughts, not even the actions of his heart, was only evil continually. Now, each and every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we say, amen. Yeah, amen. Jeremiah would say it like this, kind of in a similar fashion. The book of Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick, who can understand it? This is why the worst wisdom you could ever get from anybody on the face of the earth is follow your heart. (laughs) This is what you get when you follow your heart. Our hearts deceive us, but the Lord knows our hearts. He's drawn to our hearts and he does something about our hearts. King David prays this prayer in Psalm 86 that really is a prayer that we ought to adopt into our prayer life. It's a a prayer about the heart. And King David prays this in Psalm 86, 11 and 12. And he prays this because he understands the gap that we have, the gap of what exists in our heart and what the Lord uh, has designed us for. And he says this, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Listen to this language. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O my Lord, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Within David, David was a guy who knew what it was like to have a divided heart, right? In one sense, he was the only person that the Lord looked at and said, hey, here's a man after my own heart. In another sense, he knew what it was like to do terrible things because he had a divided heart. So his prayer was, unite my heart to fear your name. I've got this divided heart that exists within me. Only you can put it together. I want to live a life that's pleasing to you because I want to see you, not only in eternity, but also in this world. So what are the symptoms of a divided heart? I think we could say lots. I think it could manifest itself in lots of different symptoms. But I think two things I just want to focus on that would kind of be big categories for us. The first one, and I've already kind of mentioned this, is a dishonest self-assessment. A dishonest self-assessment. Almost every great theologian and thinker in the history of the church agrees on one point, believe it or not. (laughs) They agree on this one point that knowledge of God and genuine knowledge of self are two essential pieces of having a true knowledge of God that actually leads to us being able to see God, to behold him. Here's what John Calvin would say in his work, Institutes. He says, it's evident that man, uh, that man never attains a true knowledge of self. I mean, think about, let's pause right there. Think about the hype over self right now. Think about how many apps you have on your phone, how many tests you've taken, uh, even like Harry Potter tests. You know, you're trying, everybody's trying to find out who they are. He says, you're starting at the wrong place. The Bible says you're starting at the wrong place. If you want to know who you are, seek to know God, and then look at yourself. So John Calvin says this, it's evident that man never attains a true knowledge of self until first he's previously contemplated the face of God. What does it mean for you to contemplate the face of God these days? What's it look like? Or are you always contemplating the face of God through some other medium? What's it look like for you to look at the character and face of God through his word and through the means of grace that, that um, Rod talked about and prayed us through? And then come down from such contemplation and to look into himself. We cannot see God because our hearts are so defiled. We come to know how dirty they are because we look at the Lord and we see how different he is, don't we? So how do we look upon the Lord? We see him alive in his people, we see him alive in his word and we gaze upon his beauty. You remember Isaiah, whenever he came into the temple and he, and he, and he beheld the glory of, the, of God and what did he say? Woe is me, I am an unclean man and I dwell among An unclean people. And I felt like the the, the Lord in that was just like, okay, yes, yes. You got it. Well done. That's us. Every time we look at God's word, we know in our heart of hearts that we are unclean, that we have divided hearts, that we do not deserve him. And friend, you have to get to that place to ever treasure Jesus. You'll never treasure Jesus if he's always a bolt-on to your life, If if he's only a sliver of your divided heart. The second symptom I would say is this, and it's kind of related to this one, is coldness of heart in worship of God. Charles Spurgeon preached on the Psalm 86 text that I just talked about, about the divided heart, and he indicated that one of the surest symptoms of a divided heart was coldness in worship. So let me just ask you this question this morning. What is the temperature of your worship? Does your heart burn for Christ? Or is this some other news medium, information that you're just taking in and putting in a category, in a catalog in your heart? What is the temperature of your worship this morning? I love that passage in Luke 24 where Jesus sneaks up kind of with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You know what I'm talking about? The end of Luke 24, you should read it sometime if you haven't. And Jesus. It's after, it's after the resurrection, before the ascension, obviously, and he, he makes an appearance to these disciples. And they're walking on this road to Emmaus, and he shows up in their midst, and, uh, and he starts, uh, like, fellowshipping with them. And then the scripture said that he opened their eyes to see who he was. And not only did he open their eyes, he opened their eyes to see his word and how all of the Hebrew texts were pointing to Jesus. And their response was this. As after Jesus left, They're talking to themselves they said, did not our hearts burn when he walked with us on the road? Did not our hearts burn when he explained the scriptures to us? Didn't we just come alive? I didn't know how dead I was until I was with him. What is the temperature of your worship of the one true God this morning? Is Christ really good news to you this morning? Worship is the expression of our delight in God. You walked in here delighting in something this morning and you'll walk out worshiping whatever that is and my prayer is that we might have a refocus of delighting ourselves and enjoying Jesus for all that he is worth and that that would be expressed through how we worship him. Because we will talk about, and we we talk about this a lot as a church, but we talk about what we're taken with. You don't have to look too far through your text messages through your Google searches, through your conversations with your kids and your friends to find out what you're worshiping. What are you taking with this morning? Because coldness of heart is a symptom of a divided heart. So, so that's, the, that's the bad news, all right? We gotta believe the bad news, though, or the good news will never be good news. So the question now is, okay, we've got a divided heart. Jesus has pinned me down. Now what do we do with it? What's he gonna do with that divided heart that we have inside of us? How will our hearts ever be united again so that we can see God? Well, the second thing is this, is that our sight must be restored by the gospel. In Jesus, we see God and self clearly. The Lord addresses this divided heart by fixing our sight problem. I I love what Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1. It's something like this. He prays that the eyes of his heart and the church in Ephesus' heart would be enlightened. Most vision problems are light problems. Did you know that? I'm not an optometrist, but I'm pretty sure. That's, that's kind of what the research shows, is that there's an obstruction of light getting into your eye, which makes things visible to you. And so Jesus has to enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see God. And then when we're on this pursuit of seeing God, our hearts long to be more pure and undefiled because of what Jesus has done for us. And Jesus, what he does is he purifies our hearts through faith in him. So I told you I'm really going to play this metaphor out today. So how many of you, we're going to see how this is going to go. How many of you guys have been to an eye doctor before? All right, it's going to work out. It's going to be good. Um, An optometrist, put yourself in the chair at the optometrist's office, okay? Bright light, there's a chair in the middle of the room, then there's this huge gadget that he swings around, you know what I'm talking about? And he puts it in front of you. So imagine this optometrist looks at you and he says, hey, look, I've got two different sheets of lines that I want you to read. I want you to read these different lines. And the whole reason you showed up at the optometrist was because what? Something's wrong with your sight, right? Something's wrong with how you're seeing, and it's producing all of these weird effects, like you can't, like like road signs are blurry or you're getting a headache when you read, the sky's the limit with the problems that poor sight can cause to us. Uh, you're squinting, you know, you know, whatever it is, but you're there for a reason. And he sets you down, and uh, he rolls his chair over, and he, he turns out the light, and it's super dark, and they dilate your eyes, and it's super weird. And, uh, <laughs> and you're sitting there, and then he, 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 and then he puts a, a, a set of lenses on your eyes. And he says, okay, read the first line. And the first set of lines is, how we see God. And the first line that you read, it's actually for you. It's pretty easy to read. God is love, and you read it, and you're like, man, I just knocked that out of the park. I'm doing great. Um, and um, and and he says, okay, very good. And he and he goes down to the next line. He says, okay, read the next line. But the problem is, you you can't make it out. You. You're trying to read, you're trying to focus, and you do the thing where you start guessing, right? Like Xers, R, what? what I don't know. You start guessing the lines because you're like afraid to, like, you know, get the test wrong. And, um, and you can't read it. And he says, Okay, well, hold on a second. Let me slip another set of lenses over your eyes. Now tell me, can you read it? And you read the next set of lines, and it says, We are eternally separated from God for our sin. Now, the problem is in this particular instance, you can, you can read that line, but you can no longer read the first line. The first line's now blurry. And he says, okay, well, some, this, is, this isn't right. You can't, you know, we're, we're not getting right. So he, he throws a third line up there. Now, when he throws up that third line, um, he tells you, okay, the, the first set of lenses that I gave you was, was, the, was the, the lenses of self-righteousness. Now, you could read that God is love, and you could be okay with that, but you couldn't read that you are separated from God that you're, that because of your sin. And so the, the next set of lenses that he puts on your eyes is this idea of uh, um, unrighteousness. And some of you in here today, you read that line, and that's the only one you can read about yourself. That's the only one that you, you feel so distant. And you're here this morning, and you're trying to get close to God with everything inside of you, but you can't hardly believe that he's love. And so the optometrist slips the other set of lenses down and he says, read the third line for me. And you say, God loves us enough to send his own son to die for us that we might live in his love. But here's the catch. For the first time, you can't just read that last line, but you can read the first line and the second line too. You can can read that God is love, even though you are eternally separated from him because of your sin, but that God loves us enough to send his son to die for us that we might live in his love. And the optometrist rolls his chair back and he says, these lenses are called the lenses of the gospel of Jesus, Christ's righteousness in your place. And you're just, you're really excited. He says, but hold on, hold on. I've got one more sheet that I wanna show you. And he, he, he starts over with the lenses and he shows you this picture of how we see self. And... um. And the first line, you can't even make it out. You're guessing again. But the line is that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You just can't read it. But the second line, you can read so clearly. You can read that you are desperately flawed. Some of us in here walked through this morning, and that's the only truth we believe about ourselves. I am so messed up, you think about your, that's what you think about yourself. You, you can't even imagine that God fearfully and wonderfully crafted you into his image and then he says, okay, hold on, let me slip the gospel lenses back on. Let's see if we can read all three lines now. And you slowly recite the lines. I am fearfully and I'm wonderfully made, even though I'm desperately and wickedly flawed. I'm a new creation being renewed in the image of Jesus Christ day by day. And you can hold all of those truths together together. Friends, that's what it means to see God. Is that you see yourself and you see God and you see how Christ is uniting your heart to fear His name again. You know, we long to see His face. We long to see God. You know why? Because His face is so different. His face, it settles our anxious hearts when we're troubled by the pain of this world. His face, cures our addictions that seek to fulfill this massive gap that lives inside of us. His face clears our record of uncertainty about our standing before him. The one that you, you just, if, you, if you're at a place where you really don't understand, like you, you really don't know where you are before the Lord, his face changes that. Because it's in his face that we lock eyes with God and we see his face is, is Jesus, the face of Jesus. Because the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and he's the exact imprint of his nature. When we see Jesus, we see the face of God, friends. And it's the most beautiful news because we're made whole when we see his face, and we come to fully and finally believe one truth, and that's this, that we're enough. It's the thing you came searching for this morning. It's the thing that you'll spend your week trying to figure out. Am I enough? Am I enough For the Lord, am I enough for others? And because of the gospel, we can confidently say, yes, I'm enough. So so what does it look like if those gospel lenses are what it means to be purified by God so that we can seek purity and then see, see God's face? What does that look like for us? Thirdly, we have a present and future promise in Christ that we can and will see God in this world and the next. So as the gospel begins to set our lives in focus, we begin to have a whole new understanding of purity and what it means to see God. And it changes both our farsighted and our nearsighted. I told you I was working this thing all the way out. Because we need farsighted vision in the gospel and we need nearsighted vision in the gospel. So what do I mean by this farsighted vision correction? Well, I mean that we'll see him in eternity, That's the trajectory that we long to be, to be seen by God fully forever. Do you know that in eternity, John writes about this in the book of Revelation, that after the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we're we're existing in perfect fellowship with the Father, here's how the scriptures describe part of that experience for us. They will see his face. We'll see his face. No one's seen his face before and lived. You remember Moses? Moses was on the mountaintop, right? Exodus 33, 34, he was on the mountaintop. Literally got got the tablets not once but twice. (laughs) Came down the mountain, his face is glowing, really wants to stay up on the mountain instead. Longs to see his face. And the Lord says, you can't see my face and live. First thing we'll do in heaven, see his face. That's what he has for us. Because we're gonna be pure in his sight, friends. And his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will have no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. That is your future because of Christ. That we have a positional promise of purity. You can't imagine how pure you will be before God's sight because of Christ. You can't imagine. Listen to Titus chapter two. Now, I want you to notice the tense of this passage. Titus writes, Paul writes to Titus, and he says he says that, you know, we're waiting for our blessed hopes, that's future tense, we're looking forward the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So we're looking forward to that Revelation 22 moment, right? That's what we're desiring, that's what we're longing for, to be whole in his sight. And then he kind of steps back and says, okay, we can look forward to that because of what Jesus has already done. He says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify, not, not hopefully purify, not maybe purify, not like make you a little bit more pure, but to purify, that's an identity statement. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus has come to fully and finally purify you. To make, to wash your sins away. Though they may be like scarlet, they'll be washed white as snow, as Isaiah says. You're white before the Lord. You are you're white as snow. There is no sin that the Father sees in you if you are in Christ. You're pure. Now, if that understanding could empower our living today, how much would life be so different? So we look forward to the future, the purity that God has for us to empower how we pursue Him today. Because in Christ, it's as if you've always and only had one ambition in your heart, the face of the Lord. That's what the father sees when he sees you because he sees his son who always only had one will. And he sees us in that. The second thing that begins to happen in us is that our nearsighted vision is corrected. What do we pray for in Matthew chapter six? What's the Lord's prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so how does our pure standing before our Father in heaven, because of the work of Jesus, make heaven come to earth today? That's the question, right? That's what we, that's what we long for our lives to be about. Second Corinthians 3 says it like this. Now, this, this, what you got to understand about this passage is that when Paul wrote this, he had that moment with Moses in mind. Because he talks about this idea about being veiled. Because when Moses came down the mountain, they threw a veil over his face because his face was so bright they couldn't stand to look at him. And they throw this veil over his face. And so here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. And I think it really uh, helps show us what it looks like to pursue a life of purity so that we can see God. He says this in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and following. But when one turns to the Lord, when one turns to Jesus, the veil is lifted. It's removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Okay, so the Lord is the Spirit, the veil's been lifted, the Spirit of the Lord lives in us, and now we have freedom. It's not freedom to go and, you know, live a licentious life, it's freedom to live in the Lord fully as pure saints. Freedom to live in the Lord. And he says, and we all, the church, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord. What's it mean to Behold. There's not a lot of activity in beholding, right? It's looking, it's gazing, it's stopping, it's soaking. We behold the glory of the Lord. And when we behold, when we behold that Revelation 22 reality, that Titus 2 reality, that we are pure in Christ, we start to become. That's what he says here. Because we're being transformed as we behold. We're being transformed into what? Into the same image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another for this all comes from the lord who is the spirit he says that our beholding leads to our becoming as so we behold the glory of god and we see him it changes us it changes how we live and it changes our identity it changes how we see ourselves and it changes our definition of what beauty is how does it change how we live well All of our lives, friends, we have been so drawn to and attracted to filthy things, right? And we've convinced ourselves that we have to call them beautiful. We've convinced ourselves that the filth of the world is actually, you know, maybe that's more beautiful than I thought it was. We've changed, we've moved the chains, we've changed the definition of what beautiful is, of what purity is. I mean, think about this. Think about the books that we read the media we consume, the things we see on screens, and we call them beautiful. But rarely is it the kind of purity that God has in mind. And so we find ourselves trying to hit at the edges and kind of, oh yeah, that was kind of beautiful, and it's like a fraction of what the whole thing was about. And it's because we've convinced ourselves that this fleshly Existence is as good as it gets. It's like C.S. Lewis says, we're far too easily pleased, right? Our standard is far too low. And here's what happens. There is a resultant effect in our satisfaction with impurity that damages us. The short-lived pursuit of impurity in this world damages our ability to see God in this world. Because we're so desensitized to what the actual beauty of the Lord is. The genuine purity of the person of Jesus, cleansing our hearts and purifying our hearts with His sacrifice and His resurrection, gives us the opportunity to call out genuine godly beauty. I think that's what evangelism is, isn't it? It's calling out what is beautiful, it's calling out what God has done. Anytime we see holiness, we behold glory, we see God. Anytime we see repentance, Anytime we see good works, anytime we see encouragement, are we not seeing the face of God, friends? Are we not seeing the transformation of one degree of glory to another alive in an image bearer of God? We are seeing the face of God this side of eternity. And we will spend all of eternity seeing the face of God in and of himself and in and of one another. Because Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And you were made in his image. The enemy wants to desensitize our heart towards sin so that we will not see God on this pursuit of purity. But Jesus has freed us up to reclaim the beautiful on our pursuit of seeing God in this broken world. And I just wanna wanna leave you with this question. And it's a question that you probably are gonna need to consider, uh, maybe for a while. Um, And it'll lead us to prayer. And I think it's a question we can all ask ourselves. Are my present efforts of purity consistent with my future hope of purity? Are my present efforts, what my life is about, consistent with what my future hope is in eternity? And if you're like me, you're going to find things that exist, lenses that you've put on that are not the gospel. And our role as image bearers of Jesus is to ruthlessly eliminate those by faith to say that they'll never give me the kind of sight that I need to see God. And so I'm going to pray for us as we consider that question today and we turn to the Lord's table. So let's pray together. Father, um, we thank you. We thank you that uh, you are a God that even though you're (laughs) unapproachable because of how holy you are, that you have revealed yourself through your son Jesus and he has come in the most humble fashion imaginable to give himself for sinners, for impure, filthy, rotten, sinful people who don't deserve to ever see your face, Lord. But that is not our story in Christ. In Christ, our, our story is that we have been purified and we are purifying. And Father, some of us are really struggling on that journey this morning. Some of us are barely here this morning, Lord. We are so discouraged and beaten up and accused by the enemy that we can't imagine that you would ever look upon us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And Lord, I pray that uh, my friends would be encouraged today that their standing is in Christ. And when we're in Christ, we are free to be uh, in the process of formation, And Father, one of the things that you avail us to is your table as a means of that transformation for us, because we have to consider the perfectly righteous body, sacrifice, and resurrection of our Savior Jesus in place of our impure motives, impure hearts, and impure actions. And so Father, today what we want to do is we want to come and we want to surrender more deeply. We want to surrender all of the ways that we've tried to see you that will never lead to us seeing you. We want to surrender all of the impurity that we've brought into these divided hearts this morning and hear your voice proclaim, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. That's really all we're asking for and looking for in this world, even though our lives are so full of so much other stuff. We just want to hear your voice. We want to see your face. So Lord, I pray that you'd meet us in that pursuit this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God, together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.